You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm Erin Dietrich, your host, Dr. Andrew Hammonds, content partner. Each week, we explore some aspect of the past, present, or future of intelligence and espionage. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy the show. Coming up next on SpyCast. They can be the best over here in the Middle East right now, but we can deal with any threat in a radius of 2,000 kilometers without being, in a way, superpower in intelligence. We are not superpower in other issues to intelligence. We are really, really good. And this is, first of all, to protect our family, and secondly, surviving. This week on SpyCast, we bring you a double bill of interviews, first featuring Shlomo Mofaz, then an interview with Zohar Palti, two incredibly knowledgeable and experienced individuals within Israeli intelligence. Shlomo Mofaz is the former head of counterterrorism analysis for the Israeli Defense Forces and currently serves as the director of the Meramit Intelligence and Terrorism Information Center. Among positions within the IDF and the Ministry of Defense, Zohar Palti formerly served as the head of intelligence for the Mossad. We couldn't think of two better people to finish out our five-week-long special on Israeli intelligence with. As this series comes to a close, we encourage listeners to continue learning about the history and current events within the region and the immense role that intelligence continues to play within it. The original podcast on intelligence and espionage since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Well, it's a pleasure to speak to you, Shlomo. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to speak to me. Um, I just wondered to start off, could you tell our listeners how you got involved in the world of intelligence? Wow. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me with you uh, today. Uh, it's my pleasure and my privilege to be here with you. I started like uh, most, most of the Israelis by recruiting uh, to the Israeli military service. Uh, as you know, or you don't know, or our listeners doesn't know, that in Israel the uh, service in the military service is mandatory. At the age of 18, everyone is uh, going to be recruited. 
Uh, I started in the paratroopers for one year, and then I was injured uh, during my training. And then I started my career in the intelligence. It was about more than 40 years ago. Uh, I started as a soldier, then uh, an officer in combat units, uh, then in uh, special uh, operations, then I was involved in uh, intelligence of, it, of uh, uh, infantry brigade in what we call today the first Lebanese war. It was in 1982 uh, when Israel uh, fought, fought against the uh, Palestinians in Lebanon who launched rockets against Israel. And uh, after that, I continued with uh, different positions in uh, headquarters, in the field, uh, in what we call the Israeli most special unit, or was the intelligence officer, what we call Sayeret Matkal. And then I worked with uh, the intelligence assistance to chief of staff at uh, the late of the 80s, uh, uh, late uh, General Dan Shomron. After that, I was uh, head of operations and intelligence in the Air Force, and after that, uh, an intelligence officer of a division in the Northern Command, and continued in the headquarters until I became, at the end of the 90s, the head of counterterrorism arena. Uh, so most of the positions were intelligence officer in different levels, in tactic, operational, and strategic one. Uh, after uh, I uh, finished my position in, uh, as the head of counterterrorism arena in the headquarters of the Israeli military intelligence, it's responsibility, it's the strategic responsibility for intelligence in, in the high level for the chief of staff, uh, for the government. In my disposition, Israel made the uh, 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 which were from South Lebanon in May 2000, and was I was at the headquarters who operate this operation. It was complicated. After that, I uh, came to United States to be the intelligence attaché in Washington D.C. for three years, and I had the privilege to uh, uh, in this position to visit the spy museum in his previous place in 2002. It was <laughs> the first steps of the museum. We had a very nice uh, visitor. I was in the States when, uh, in the September 11, I was in my way to the Pentagon to a meeting. So 15 minutes uh, before, we saw the airplanes, uh, the first airplane, uh, or the second one in New York, and then once they understood that we won't have a meeting this day. And I worked with the officials in, uh, in the state about in the intelligence, uh, about terrorism and counterterrorism because it was something that uh, you have never had before. After that, I, I returned to Israel in the, uh, in the position of the deputy head of the production division. Production division is responsible for all the uh, analysis, research and analysis in the strategic level. I retired after that in 2004. And since then, I worked in, uh, in startups and uh, companies involved intelligence and counterterrorism. I do some uh, consulting 
to governments and to companies for about 15 or 16 years. And from the last uh, one and a half year, I'm the head of the ITIC, the Center of Intelligence, uh, Mayor Meet Intelligence for uh, Information and Terrorism. Okay, wow. There's a lot of things that I would like to discuss there. Uh, just very briefly, could you tell our listeners that am I right in saying that it's three years for males and two years for females that's mandatory in the, IV, the IDF? Is that correct? Yes, today it has been changed today. Today for, for uh, men it's two years and uh, eight months. Uh, and for women it's two, two years today. Actually, I have now two children, my my youngest one, I have a twins that was born in the United States uh, in my service there. So uh, both of them uh, now in in service. I have also two adults, uh, two adult boys who have been also already in the service. So I have two now in the service, a boy and a girl. And just to help our listeners understand as well, uh, Israel is... Uh, relying on the reserve forces, on the people that have came through the IDF training. Uh, it's relying on them. If a war breaks out, it's unique. It's a, it's a little different from other countries. Is that correct? Yes, this is a unique platform or unique structure that actually started by the man who established the Israeli state, Ben Gurion, in 1948. He has the vision how the IDF should be, and the name, also the name, Israeli Defense Forces. So because we're, we're a small, small uh, uh, community in Israel, when the Israel was established, was, uh, we're here about 600,000 people, that's, uh, that's all. And in the first war, in the independence war, 1% of the population in Israel have been killed in this uh, independent war. And he put the, the structure of the service, it's mandatory, and the, uh, the reserves, this is the most powerful uh, capability of Israel when there is a war, where there is a tension, where there is something like that, recruit them. But today, not everyone that, that uh, retired or finishes service is going to the reserves. Only part of the people, because a lot of a lot of other reasons. Hmm. That's that's really interesting. And when you moved over to intelligence, was that something that you led? Did did you think this is something I would like to do, or how does it work? You just told you're you're going to intelligence, or was that a little of both? Uh, it was a. I think it was a lack and uh, something that uh, when you're injured, you can't be in combat units. So they send you in your unit. They see what your capabilities and they, they think that I'm uh, not a stupid guy, so go to the intelligence. But as a soldier, you do only very simple uh, work. And after that, after one year, I went to a, to a officer course and then I got the, the training to be an intelligence officer. And for then, this is the career I've, I've made it for 25 years. Mm-hmm. What year did you did you begin and when did you leave the military? I started in 1978 and I retired in 2005. Okay, wow. 
And, and, and during those first 10 years or 12 years coming up to 1990, is there, is there any operation that you were involved in or any experience that you had that you could share with our listeners to help them understand what it was like to be you? And of course, during this period, we have the Lebanon War, we have um, the First Intifada, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole variety of things going on. So I'm just wondering if there's anything in those first 12 years that, that stands out for you. Unfortunately, we have uh, always uh, tension and activity. We, in, we are living in a very tough neighborhood in Israel. And most of the threats are, come from all kinds of terrorism. In the first years, when a young officer, uh, it was uh, activity in Lebanon before the, Leban the first Lebanese war. So the, we did some ambushes and activities inside Lebanon. So you need, you need to prepare the, all the information for the forces that are going to do the ambush or the activity or the raid or for whatever has been uh, take a decision to do. And then to uh, bring them the air photography, the intelligence for other sources to translate them the information to uh, act actionable uh, intelligence from time to time you join them to the activity cross the border with them and be in the in the field with the combat unit in the activity the activities could be one day or two days or three or four days mainly at that time it's a short activity to do some ambushes or other uh, undercover activity to uh, wait for the terrorists to come to the Israeli border and then to try to stop them. This is what the first uh, step. After that, I was in uh, in a unit of special operations, uh, the headquarters of special operations. And in this division, I started the war in Lebanon. And after that, after two weeks, I came. I became a head of AI intelligence officer of a of a brigade. During the war, part of the units uh, land on the Lebanese shore with the forces, with the, some of them came through the ground, some through the air, and special forces came from the sea. And I was, I was a part of this activity. It was a very impressive one. And then uh, during the war, one of the main activities was uh, to the first time that uh, Israel went to... Uh, a capital of uh, other country to Beirut in Lebanon. So we went uh, on the ground to Beirut. And uh, what I remember then, it was the first time that in the level of brigade, we used UAV. It was, uh, I'm speaking about 1982. It was uh, something very new. And at the beginning, you didn't understand how to use it, but it was a miracle. So you have a UAV, not... In the in the uh, in the quality that you have today, but to to have as a young uh, captain some kind of information, it changed the, the view how you you bring information to the forces, to how to uh, uh, translate them the information, the intelligence to actionable intelligence, and uh, I learned a lot from this operation because until then you got everything from people be in, in other positions above you. At that time, you have straightforward. Look what happened uh, in the next street, 
and in in a town that you don't know every every single roader so it was very challenging and uh, uh, I, I learned a lot from this activity and just before we go on to discuss other parts of your career there's probably some people out there that are going to be listening to this episode who want to forge a career as a, an intelligence officer or an intelligence soldier or operative. Um, you obviously done very well in your career. Is there is there one thing that you would say to people that want to, you know, develop a full career in this area? Is there is there one thing that you learned or or one piece of wisdom that was given to you or something that you would you would care to share? Yeah, I I believe that uh, the key in every position, but mainly in the intelligence, is the quality of the people that you work. So, two things about that. First of all, intelligence, it's not one piece. It's There is a research, there's compact tuning, there's operational, there's positions in the field, positions in the headquarters. I believe that you have to have a, an experience in different ways of intelligence. Not only be the one who gives the intelligence, you need to be also in the position to collect the information, to analyze the information, and know how to digest the information or do the research, the understanding, and how to provide. It's not only uh, you know the intelligence. Intelligence is a tool. It's a service for decision makers. And this, uh, sometimes people don't understand it. Intelligence doesn't work for intelligence. Intelligence works for, it's help decision makers to make the decision better. But at the end, the decision maker take the decision. This is one thing that I, I, I learned. The second thing, as far as you go up in positions, know how to choose your, your, uh, your, your people that work with you. Because you can't do everything by yourself and you need to count to other people. When you're dealing with intelligence, mistakes are uh, very problematic. Let's say an understatement that, that uh, don't do mistakes. People make mistakes. No, no way. Everyone uh, makes mistakes. But you need to choose the best people that you can work with them and you can count on them that you, they bring the information or the service that you need in real time. And real time, it's also a thing that in intelligence, it's, uh, it's very important, mainly when you're dealing with terrorism. Because the time is crucial. You can have information about a target but you have a very small uh, window of opportunity to do to, to make it actionable intelligence. For example, if you want to do a targeting killing, this is Israel uh, very famous with targeting killing. You have to have a very accurate intelligence. But sometimes you have a window of opportunity when the target moves, for example, with the car and he's living in an uh, urban area to open area, there's only one second. And you need to bring all the intelligence capability, operational capability to this to this place, to the one moment that it's in clear place, you can hit him without uh, collateral damage for the uh, for the environment. You mentioned counterterrorism there. I know that this is such a part of the fabric of what the IDF do and what intelligence officers do. But at what point did you 
to have your first counter-terrorism focused job. I know that every job involved it to some extent, but did you ever have a job that was just, okay, this is all you're doing now, you're doing counter-terrorism? Uh, yes. Uh, in as, as, as you mentioned, in on most of the positions from uh, a young officer until a uh, captain, I, I dealt with, with counter-terrorism in different ways. But the uh, first job, it was in the middle of the two jobs. First of all, the first job as as an intelligence officer of division that was responsible to the border of Lebanon. So it's uh, about uh, 190 or 200 kilometers border, and you are the intelligence officer of a division. You have intelligence officer of brigades, of uh, regiment, and so on. And all the all your activity is first of all early warning, and then targets, and then understand who is the enemy or terrorist group on the other side, to uh, make a research about them to don't know their capabilities. This is this was in the operational level my first uh, position that I dealt only with terrorism, counterterrorism, actionable intelligence, and counterterrorism in operational tactical level. After that, I was the head of a branch in the headquarters that was responsible for uh, risk for alert research and analysis of terrorist groups uh, in the northern part of Israel. It means Hezbollah that was in his first steps in Lebanon and other terror organizations in Lebanon in the level of, of the strategic and operational level for the headquarters, for the chief of staff, and, and so on. So this is on one position and then other position. It was only counterterrorism to bring the information, to take decisions about uh, operations and to support operations uh, against terrorism. But the first priority was always early warning, how to prevent them to do what they want to do. For our listeners that haven't been involved in this, it sounds like a very stressful position. You're responsible for early warning, uh, 190-kilometer border. It sounds like, is it not one of those jobs where you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and you think, here's a piece of the jigsaw puzzle I never thought about. Maybe this can have an effect and I have to go to the office or phone my boss or phone my subordinate or something. Just tell us about the like living a life while doing this kind of job. I tell you, that not always in two o'clock in the morning you are asleep, you know. Sometimes you're still awake. <laughs> but I'll give, give you one example. In the, in the 90s, when Hezbollah started the, the activity, uh, if you want to, I can explain later on about Hezbollah, but uh, for the listeners, there was a, a, a period from the beginning of the 90s that uh, Hezbollah uh, uh, built a deterrence balance between Israel and, and them, and every time they thought that we hit a, a civilians in Lebanon from their point of view, they launched rocket to the town that was on the border called Kiryat Shmona, in the town in the northern command, and, the, and the, they need to go to the shelters if they have time. So one of the time we have a very sensitive information that uh, Hezbollah is going to launch rockets on Kiryashmana, but it was a, a very sensitive, <coughs> sensitive uh, information. And the dilemma was either you 
go to the citizens and give them early warning, go to the shelters, and then you expose your source. It was a very sensitive source that if we lost this sensitive source, we have a problem next time. Or you uh, don't uh, uh, tell the, the civilians go to the shelters and then you take a, a risk that someone will hurt. And you need to, to sit with the head of the Northern Command, it's a general, and other people from the operational side and take a decision. What's your recommendation? And, and you need to remember that the head of the command, operational command, it's a general, he doesn't, he don't, uh, he doesn't have a responsibility for the sources. He has the responsibility for the security. But he understands the meaning that if we lose this source, he won't have in the near future very good alert about uh, about the, the activity, and he took decisions not not telling the citizens go to the shelters. When they try start to launch, he took a risk, but we have source force for other times to for early warning. This is a dilemma as an intelligence officer uh, in front of decision maker. What to do in this? Uh, and the decision is of the decision maker, not of the intelligence officer. But you have to come to to, to tell him, listen, the, this is the situation. This is my recommendation. But the decision is yours, and it's very difficult. Or sometimes during the night, you have some pieces of information. You're at home. Of course, you have a secure line or something like that. But you need to analyze the information and take a decision. Do I uh, publish an alert or early warning? And it's not saying, okay, say early warning. Early warning has a lot of meaning. You need to uh, send more forces to the arena, and you need to go to, if it's uh, early warning for Katusha workers, you need to send the, 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 the citizens to the shelters. You need to uh, head to the Air Force to be with airplanes on the sky. There is a lot of meaning, so there's responsibility to say this is a, an early warning. There are some stages that all the, the IDF need to do some steps after you say this is early warning. And if you're sitting in the headquarters, this is a very big responsibility until the chief of staff, sometimes to the prime minister, sometimes to the uh, cabinet. Another responsibility is when you're attacking uh, uh, ter- terrorist targets. And I, I was in a lot of cabinet meetings when Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, was in the first role as a prime minister in the end of the 90s. And uh, every week, every month, we have some attacks in Lebanon against uh, Hezbollah targets. And every time we need to come and say, we have a cross information and this is a target. This is a target. It means that you, this is, there is a standard. What is a target? When you say the target, it means common knowledge that you have a cross information from different sources in a gap of time of uh, three months or two months. It depends on the on the sources, and then it got it got the sign that this is a target, it, uh, and go it's go to the bank of targets. We have a bank of targets, so during an operation you can meet. Then you go to the cabinet because every attack need to be approved by the cabinet. And they ask you questions. Why this is a, a good target? Good. 
Why is this target a legitimate target? What will be the collateral damage? Is there any civilians that uh, that may be hit? Uh, unfortunately, if you attack this, and if you say yes, they know they didn't approve it. So you need to come to the, to the ministers, prime minister, minister of defense, chief of staff, and others, and tell them why this is a target and why and the, that you have checked all the other uh, regulations. It would be a target, and it's a very tough uh, job. It sometimes it happened during the night. Sometimes it's early in the morning because you don't control when the uh, the attack or the situation uh, change. You mentioned Hezbollah there. I think it would be quite interesting to look at them as an example. So I know that you've written elsewhere that. Hezbollah, a lot of our listeners won't know this, Hezbollah have their own intelligence unit and they have very stringent uh, vetting investigations of people that want to join and so forth. It was very, very fascinating, some of the, the information that I came across. You're doing intelligence for Israel. Who were some of the people that you were facing off against? What does Hezbollah's intelligence look like? Is it informal? Is it formal? Is there... Is there structures? Is there processes? Is it decentralized? Yeah, just help our listeners understand Hezbollah. How would Hezbollah do intelligence? Before I speak about Hezbollah, how to do intelligence, let me, in a few words, to expand the, audi- the audience. What is the Hezbollah? What is this organization? Because today, uh, I don't know if uh, most of the people know, today Hezbollah is the strongest terror organization in the world. In the world, Hezbollah today has capabilities that a lot of countries around the world don't have it. For example, UAVs for 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 attack, missiles 100,000-50 missiles for the ranges of 40 kilometers until three or 400 kilometers. So there is a lot of countries that doesn't uh, have this kind of, of capabilities, and so on and so on. Hezbollah, you need to understand it, was established by Iran. By Quds Force, this is the, 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 the elite force of, of Iran, and they established Hezbollah at the beginning of the 80s. And then, in, with the clashes against Israel, they became stronger and stronger. They started with uh, a few hundreds, and today uh, there is uh, more than approximately uh, 50 or 60,000 uh, uh, fighters of Hezbollah in less than 30 years. And, and just briefly, most of those fighters are Lebanese? Yes, most of the, most of the, let's say most of the 99% of the fighters are Lebanese living in Lebanon. Most of them are from the Shia section of Islam because Lebanon, most of it is Shia today. Not in the past, it wasn't like that. And Iran also is uh, the religious, is the, the Shia section of the Islam. So in the beginning, as, as a terrorist group, as a small terrorist group, when they recruited people, it, it was a, a, a process to do investigation about who is this guy, what is his family, from where he came, and all this stuff, until they recruit them at the beginning, because this is, was the hardcore, the hardcore of, of uh, Hezbollah. 
the way they did it, they learned a lot from the Iranians. Iran has a very strong security forces. Uh, unfortunately, part of them was trained by Israeli security forces in the 17th, where Israel has good relationship with Iran under uh, the Shah Pahlavi. Reza Pahlavi, the Shah that was, uh, that, uh, uh, was expelled from, uh, from Iran after the Iran, the revolution in Iran in, uh, 90, in 70, uh, 1979, February, and Ayatollah Khomeini uh, came to the position of the leader of uh, Iran. So they did the investigation and they learned a lot from Iran how to collect information and how to prevent from us to collect information. And one of the most biggest problems we had in the, during the, the period that we have in Lebanon, and it, this is part of my thesis that I wrote about the intelligence against Hezbollah from 1982 until 2000, and the time we fought on the ground in Lebanon, is what, what we call the human intelligence, the human. Israel has a very, very big problem to recruit uh, Hezbollah as, a, as a agents or people who cooperate with Israel because of the processes they did, because that was a very tough religious organization, because people that they were recruited also was, uh, uh, was uh, believers in the Shia, fanatic one, extremists, and uh, this is one of the reasons we had a very big problem in intelligence during that uh, period in Lebanon, and uh, unfortunately we lost a lot of uh, soldiers there because we couldn't bring the best intelligence uh, that the forces on the ground uh, need to have. And Hezbollah are still funded by Iran, right? Hezbollah, in the 80s and 90s, the, the estimation was that Hezbollah got $100 million a year at that time. Uh, and also ammunition and arms and training and so on. Today, the assessment is $1 billion, $1 billion a year. Hezbollah, Iran uh, gave to Hezbollah. And also, also the, the, today, the situation different because Ivan uh, invests a lot of money in Lebanon and today Hezbollah, let's say this is an organization that has a, a, a state. That's the situation today in Lebanon. Lebanon today it's in a big crisis, political crisis, economical crisis, and nothing could be happening in Lebanon without the permission or the, the exception of uh, Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured 
Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. I think one of the, the the things that some of our listeners may be asking is, and perhaps a little naively, I, I don't understand this, why... Why does Iran hate Israel so much? It doesn't share a land border with Israel. It's got its own internal problems uh, and so forth. So where does all of this come from? First of all, it came again from Iran. Iran, when Iran was, uh, after the revolution, with the, the uh, view of Satyri of Hamanei, he saw the enemy, the West is the enemy of the Islam. United States, the big Satan, and Israel, the small uh, Satan. And the second one is uh, we need to expand the revolution, to, ex- to uh, export the revolution for other places. And the first place they decided was Lebanon because they had some connection with the Shia community in Lebanon because Lebanon was, from the history, from the beginning of Lebanon, Lebanon was... Uh, always has some internal problems because the structure, uh, you have Christians, you have uh, Sunnah Muslim, you have Shia Muslim, and it was an unstable uh, state. And Iran put a sign on Lebanon, Lebanon, this is the first country we, we export the, 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 the revolution to Iran. And they started with the Shia, Shia population in South Lebanon, and in, in, uh, into the generation, some uh, uh, more uh, religious activity and more investing money, for example, uh, education, and so on. And then it, it became uh, a, a strategic. And today, Hezbollah, not today, but in the last two or 20 or 40, 30 years, Hezbollah is a strategic arm of Iran in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember when I was in uh, graduate school, I I had to study the the politics and history of Lebanon, and I remember <laughs> it's fabulously complex. It's like reading Martin Heidegger in German while you're drunk or something like that. There's just a lot going on there, and and we're not going to get into it. But I think it's very, it's very. <laughs> it's another podcast. What about Lebanon? And how corrupted the country it is, and how until today, and this is one of the reasons they had a, a lot of problems and corruption. Even today, when the economic situation it's on the ground, and they don't have a, a president from last October, 
I, I think it's it's different podcast to go in, not in this yeah, one. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> For Israel and and the the neighborhood, let's just go around all of the the different countries. So Egypt, we have the peace agreement and the border solidified in 1979. Uh, Jordan, we have a peace agreement and the border solidified in 1994. We've just spoke about Lebanon, so maybe we could just discuss Syria. What is going on with Syria? Okay. Uh, Syria now uh, try to uh, go back to the 10, 10, 15 years ago before the civil war in Syria. Syria has a civil war between uh, 2011 until 2020, 2019. It depends who is looking. And uh, today, uh, Syria uh, doesn't uh, control all the area that called Syria, only 60-65%. Part of it is under the control of uh, ISIS in the eastern part. Part of it is under the control of uh, groups that are against the, the government. And they have the involvement because they had problems to uh, fight against the people who are against them and against uh, ISIS, we have now involvement of Russia army. There's Russia army, Russia air, Russia air force, and others in Syria who have Iranians military activity in in Syria. So we have the involvement of Iran, involvement of Syria, and Iran also have some areas that they control inside Syria, and also they are militias. About 60, 65,000 people in Syria, most of them Syrian citizens, but part of them from Afghanistan and other places. They are paid by Iran and controlled by Iran, but they're sitting in Syria. And so this is a very complicated uh, issue. And on the other hand, all the most of the support of arms and ammunition and all this stuff came from uh, in two ways. One way from uh, air to Damascus and other uh, airports in Syria, and then they try to transfer it to Lebanon. And talking about uh, some very advanced uh, capabilities. And on the ground from Iran through Iraq, through Syria until Lebanon, this is the, the land, the, the ground. Uh, a line, and also you need to remember that also in Iraq there is it's one, more than 100 or 250, 200,000 militias, Shia militia. They are funded by Iran under the control by Iran, but they are part of the Iraqi government. This is very complicated again. So according to foreign publications, Israel are attacking uh, all the uh, these capabilities of Iran, Quds Force, this is the elite force of, of uh, Iran, and Hezbollah in, in Syria to avoid them to bring advanced capabilities to Lebanon. Not always uh, uh, there is uh, victories in this, this, this issue. Sometimes uh, there is attacks on airports that the aeroplanes came with the, the, the arms, sometimes in uh, storage areas and so on. So 
בשאר אל-אסד, So he was a dentist in London, and his father called him to come, and he was the president. And Nasrallah, during the period of uh, Hafez al-Assad, I think he met Hafez al-Assad once a year, mainly, maybe once a year. He was very afraid from, from uh, Hafez al-Assad. Actually, until 2000, the... the, the uh, Power, the more power was, in, was by the hand of Syria on Lebanon. So they control what happened in Lebanon. Today, Nasrallah, on the last 10 or 15 years, Nasrallah teached Bashar Assad how to rule Syria. So the, a lot of changes have been made in, in Syria. So it sounds like most of the threats are coming from the northern border then, Syria and Lebanon. I think it would be really good to speak a little bit more about the Miramit Center. Could you just tell our listeners a little bit more about that? It's called, the full name is uh, Miramit Intelligence and Terrorism Information Center, ITIC. Miramit was a general, he was the, the only Israeli general that was the head of the Mossad and the head of the military intelligence in the 60s. Uh, the beginning of Israel. The ITIC uh, was established about 20 years ago, and it's an NGO, non-profit, uh, an, an NGO, non-profit organization. What we do, we do a research by collecting open source intelligence, only open source intelligence, regarding to analyze the, the terror threats against Israel. This is the, the mission. How we do it? We collect information from the uh, original language, mainly Arabic, sometimes Farsi, but most of the information is for Arabic. First-hand information, it could be radio publication, it could be uh, TV, it could be uh, social media, everything that is open and it's legal. And we are not doing some operations. We are the civilian uh, uh, organization. We collect the information. And the other thing that's unique in what we are doing, we write the facts 
which the footnotes were, what is the source? So today, you know, there's a lot of fake news. I'm not telling that all the information is true, but we are saying, if, if I say this and that guy who made these terror attacks into Dan Samara, he belongs to the Hamas, I have evidence. I check his name. I check uh, what the hospital in Judean Samaria and Gaza Strip uh, published, what is the kind of the name. I go and do investigation about the name in Facebook, Twitter, and other places, and can, then you can find that the guy uh, have pictures with guns and rifles and want to be uh, what we call the suicide bomber or something like that. What kind of funeral he has? Who takes responsibility for the funeral? Is there the terrorist group Hamas? Or others, and then I have a conclusion, he was a terrorist. So we do all this investigation from open sources. So, and we publish uh, a, a weekly report based on the information we collect uh, on the uh, activity on the challenges in the Palestinian arena, in Hezbollah, in Syria, in Lebanon, Iran, and, and the, what's we call the global jihad. We are covering global jihad, mainly ISIS, but also Al-Qaeda, from Afghanistan to Africa. So every week we publish uh, this uh, publication with the what happened and, and the short conclusion. We are not doing like other research centers. We are not doing recommendation. We are not dealing with policy. Pure information, data, and uh, uh, first-hand understanding the situation all the publication is in Hebrew, and then they translate to English to 24 hours. All the publications in our website. Uh, we have uh, more uh, 100,000 of visitors every month. Most of them, by the way, more than 90% from them are in the English version, not in the Hebrew version, and most of them from the United States, and then Europe, and and, and so on. So we have researchers that know, we have people who collect the information in Arabic and translate it for us. We are not uh, uh, see what other people translate. We have our translation uh, researchers and all, most of our researchers as well know Arabic or Farsi and they have a lot of experience uh, how to write reports. And this is what we, uh, we do. We have more than 200 publications a year. We have weekly publication, we have ad hoc publication. Ad hoc publication, it means that uh, something that happened, operation, or the special information we have, so we publish, we do a deep research, and we have uh, uh, infrastructure uh, uh, publication about, uh, we call in-depth studies about an organization. For example, we wrote about the Houthis in Yemen or about Al-Shabaab in Africa, and do you have a staff that's doing this research, Shlomo? All the staff that we have, there are less than 20 people, including translators, including collectors, including uh, people who write researchers, the researchers, including uh, uh, all the technical issues of website, we put on all the things in the website, storage and all this stuff, but very uh, professional and a lot, with a lot uh, of experience. Even the translators, they translate from Hebrew to English, working with us for more than 10 years. So they know the phrases, they know uh, if it's translation to English version in, for the United States or from 
British, so they know the nuance. But because we don't do two translations, we do only one. They know the the right phrases to use, uh, right, uh, right phrases to use uh, regarding uh, terrorist activity, terror organizations, intelligence, and also the sources to write the name of the Twitter, the name of the the, the Facebook uh, name, the name of the Telegram, how to write it from Arabic to English in in the right way. And people can sign up for your newsletter if they go to your website, right? Exactly. People can go to our website and uh, go to our mailing list. The only thing you need to do is put your email. Well, thanks ever so much for your time. This has been a really uh, great conversation. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you to, for having me. And uh, in the future, we can do another postcard about other issues. And I enjoy very much to talk to you. really pleased to speak to you today, Zohar, and I, I, I want to thank you for joining me firstly, but I also wondered, let, let, let's just start at the beginning. How did you get involved in the world of intelligence? Well, frankly, it was by uh, coincidence in a way, because um, it was the first Lebanon war when I was drafted in uh, 82, 1992. And uh, I went to the um, to the armored force. And I don't know, something wasn't right back then after a couple of months, and then they transferred me to the Intel and started the career in the Northern Command. Uh, all the IDF used to be in Lebanon back then. And very, very fast, after three months, they sent me to an officer course. And since then, <laughs> 40 years okay. I stayed in the, in the intelligence. <laughs> okay, and the intelligence core, just for our listeners, this was set up and uh, the aftermath of the Yom Kippur War, is that correct? It was also before, but after the Yom Kippur War, uh, they've done a, a big revision, I mean, huge one, uh, that they change almost everything, and they give a lot of authorities and independence. Uh, what's unique over here, uh, probably we'll speak about later on, that the director of military intelligence is the only guy that have the ability to take to the uh, policy makers, to the political level, uh, exactly so his personal, not personal, personal meaning professional opinion, uh, and he don't have to reflect the opinion of the IDF, of the chief of staff. This is one of the lessons of young people, that he can open, let's say, parallel track with the decision makers in order to update them. That's the, he's the only general in the general headquarters that have um, a weekly or monthly meeting with the Prime Minister or Minister of Defense. All the other generals have to do it through the Chief of Staff. Was there any kind of cultural differences that you saw between being in the, in the the infantry and being in the intelligence corps, was it a different type of person in the intelligence corps? Was the culture different um, or was it, was it, there were some minor differences, but it was pretty similar? Completely different, okay. The IDF is uh, like military style, 
chain of command and everything. In the Intel, it's not that it's not part of the IDF, meaning from the military system. Of course it is, with all the ranks and everything. But you almost uh, breaking all the barriers between lieutenant and generals. Meaning, um, the chain of command over here is much more flexible because you have to rely on the young officers, on the young, sometimes privates even, because we are drafted in Israel, all our boys and our girls. And they're coming when they are 18 years old, as they're going to an officer course, and then they have to sign to be a professional career officer. And um, that's give us a room over here uh, to rely on the young generation all the time to fresh uh, our own minds. So meaning if you are a major, for example, well, you're dealing like every day with people you drafted like yesterday and they are challenging you. If you will be with the strict commands of the military change and things like that, you won't get the advantage of the young generation. And that's the reason the intelligence is a bit more flexible than the other groups. That's interesting. So the the intelligence component of of the intelligence core that almost has to have is that almost has to have parity with the military component of the intelligence core because if it's just a strict hierarchy, then the intelligence part of this will not it won't be fulfilled properly because of the hierarchy. In a way, you can do it, hierarchy. But I think that a lot of commanders understand immediately that they're losing over here a huge advantage. Uh, it's not by coincidence that um, one of the most close relationships uh, in the field has been between the commander, the battalion commander, or the brigade commander, or the division commander with his intelligence officer. Usually, he will be more um, experienced. He will be more by age, he will be a bit more older than the, let's say, combat commanders. And uh, he's not uh, standing on the same rubric as the commander, because the commander used to be commander of platoon and battalion. And the intelligence officer is bringing to the table something else. Uh, strategic thinking, how the decision makers are thinking if he's coming from the headquarter to anticipate and to evaluate what would be the next moves. He helped the commander in order to shape the battle zone and to think in creative thinking. And of course, he's bringing all the, we have one hell of uh, behind us of the core that is uh, one of the biggest force that we have in the IDF. And the commanders, the brilliant one, immediately take advantage and they're using the intelligence officer as a big asset in the, in the chain of command. And I would like to go on to discuss your time in the Golani Brigade. And maybe there's an example of this that you can tell us when you were working alongside a, a, a commander uh, who, was, who was leading a combat arm and you were there to uh, provide intelligence, strategic guidance and so forth. So but just before we begin to unpack that, can you just tell our listeners that don't know uh, much about Israel or the IDF. What is the Golani Brigade? This is quite a famous brigade, right? It's the first brigade. <laughs> the number of the Golani Brigade is uh, Brigade Number One. It's the um, infantry brigade. We have a couple of them. By the way, although I grew up in the Golani, all of them are superb. The infantry brigade, but over here, being local patriotic, you know, and say that the Golani is the best. <laughs> but uh, what I took over there, this is something. 
back then I was a major, like early 30s or late 1920s. What I took is something priceless because I spent another like three decades as a manager, big commander in some other organization as well. How to deal with people, how to love people. That people are the most important asset that we have. And you learn it in the infantry. Usually it's after a long walk in the middle of the night with all the equipment on your back. And uh, before dawn, when you see like 1,000 to 2,000 people are gathering because it's freezing, because it's like uh, 33 degrees uh, Fahrenheit or like minus uh, in Celsius, and how people are taking care about each other and how they care about the safetyness of each other and the commanders that are actually feeling responsible about their own people. If this is something that when you're only in the intelligence course, it's not so tangible like you see the in, like you see it in infantry brigade. It's not coming not to the professional, not to the intelligence, it's how to be a commander. In the infantry, when you serve in the infantry brigade, this is priceless. This is the biggest gift that they gave me later on to deal with my own people and I some hundreds or thousands of people pass later on under my command. I think I learned a lot from the Golan Brigade. And the, Go- the Golani Brigade, this is named after the Golan Heights, which is a, a geographical feature in northern Israel. Yeah, always it used to be uh, the Northern Brigade of us, although in the last 20, 30 years in any, any uh, severe or serious battle that we have, whether it's in the south, whether it's in the West Bank, whether it's in Gaza, Golani will always be the first to, to engage because they are really superb. Uh, and so when you were with the Golani Brigade, you were still in the infantry at the time or you were... A, you were... No, 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 I was, I, was, I was sending from the intelligence course to be the intelligence officer of the Golani Brigade. Okay, that's what I thought. So you have your own, you have your own department over there with uh, some officers, mm-hmm. of course, all the officers uh, at the battalions. Golani Brigade have several battalions. You have several of, um, battalion officers. And they're all under you from professional point of view. You have to guide that slam. And of course, the special forces of the brigade, the observations, UAVs, everything, all the collections, everything is on them. Wow. And one thing that I wanted to ask was, was there any particular event or operation that you're able to talk about that that you can um, use to illustrate for our listeners what it was like to be an intelligence uh, officer with the Galani Brigade? Maybe something that happened or, or some operation? This is not unique for Galani Brigade because before I was in, in the, a different brigade and before of that I was in the um, noted command in the headquarter. Um, what's really unique in operation that you're doing mainly back then, you know, used to be, the IDF used to stay in Lebanon for like 18 years, is the proximity between the intel, the fact that you're getting very sensitive intel, how to diverse it to something operation, manic, that for example, you intercept some salient or um, visit element, how to do the integration regarding the intelligence between the salient and the visit, and to translate it to the commander 
and to protect his troops. That you see bad guys in an ambush or something like that, that you intercepted conversation or something, that you know that there is an ambush that want to jeopardize your own troops. Your responsibility is to translate all the big data that you have behind from all the computer, all the smart people that are working, thousands of them in the intelligence of, to one sentence, stop. You don't know where they are right now. You just speak with them in the radio and say, we don't know exactly where you are, just freeze. If you are good enough, and if the intelligence is accurate enough, you're saving life, for example. This is something that, um, in the end, it seems to me that the, the ability to save lives and to protect your own people, this is something that you are taking with you for all the way. And this is the, the reason that we are standing in those systems, because you actually feel that you're, you're making the difference. And one thing that I would like to ask was, intelligence is obviously very important for every state and every military and every military commander, but it seems to me that because of Israel's security predicament, it plays a, a, an especially important role. Um, this may seem like a stupid question, but uh, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Would you agree that in Israel intelligence has a an importance that it just doesn't have for certain other countries just because it has a different security environment? I don't know to judge other countries, but no doubt that in Israel, the, the intelligence, this is something that is one of the most important issues when you're coming to uh, decision-makers' rules. It could be a tactical one in a brigade. It could be on the level of the cabinet or the prime minister that they used to uh, sit for so many uh, years in those um, rooms. Why? First of all, it's because of our history. We have, you know, we're a young, we're a young entity, 75, 76 years. All the, um, in a way, in the back of our mind, that there is existential threat to, to the Jewish people, meaning we can't miss over here. We already lost 6 million people in our history, never again, as the slogan said. And we actually mean it. And in a way, I would refer to that, to other issues of the intelligence, how we dealt with the nuclear reactor in 81, or in 2007 in Syria, or in Iraq. It's all connected. 73, that the intel really uh, made a lot of mistakes that we came to the point, to the point that we felt, many people felt that this is the falling of the three house meaning the state of Israel is about to fall over here because the intel uh, didn't supply an early warning enough. Um, and because that if the intel is not strong, a lot of people are dying. You said it, uh, you phrased it brilliantly before. Meaning, take suicide attacks in the second intifada. If you're not good enough, you're not preventing suicide attack. Dozens of people are dying. A lot of the money, most of the money is going first and foremost to intelligence. Now, whether from operational point of view, we'll have, you need, of course, good aircraft, good infantry, we spoke about Golan, we've spoken about them. But they can't operate without an accurate intelligence. They can't be the best over here in the Middle East right now that we can deal with any threat in a radius of 2,000 kilometers without being, um, in a way, superpowering intelligence. 
We're not superpowering other issues in the intelligence. We are really, really good. And this is, first of all, to protect our family. And secondly, surviving over here in the region. We have to be the best. It seems to me that because of the the nature of the state of Israel because it's not particularly wide at specific parts. In fact, it's, it's very narrow at specific parts. It's not particularly big. There's not a lot of strategic depth in, in many cases. So it seems to me that the margin for error is much more constrained, which means that the intelligence it has to be magnified. It has to be even more important because there's not a lot of... Um, margin for errors to, to take place. Would, would you agree with that? So true. And I just referred to that exactly to your question before. We have a very narrow country. From the sea till the closest city, Palestinian city in the West Bank is less than 40 kilometers. It's like nothing. If you take uh, this area, it's something between... Uh, you're passing between D.C., uh, Virginia, and Maryland. You just do the tour, and this is it. When you have a guy that wants to do a suicide attack in the middle of Tel Aviv, when he's taking a car in this radius or this range that you just spoke about, a couple of dozens or less than 20 kilometers sometimes, you, have, you need to provide intel to the police or to the other security services Sometimes less than 20 minutes from the fact that nobody knows nothing. Name, who is the bad guy, the vehicle that he's using, what kind of explosives that he have, and where he's going. Intelligence organizations that have the ability to do it less than 20 minutes, probably they are good. Sadly, I'm thinking, I prefer to take all the energy, all the money and everything, and to invest in high tech like Israel, in civilian one. But because we have security challenges like that, we have to invest in those issues to be the best. And that's why the intel over here is crucial. That leads on to my next question, Zohar. Is there a particular Israeli way of intelligence? You know, you hear of an American way of war or uh, the Roman way of war. Um, I'm imagining that there's a similar thing for intelligence, a British way of intelligence an American way of intelligence. Is there an Israeli way of intelligence? There is right now a um, colonel reserve uh, that right now is already retired. His name is uh, Colonel Tay Shapira. That just uh, completely right now is PhD regarding the unique uh, Israeli intel culture. Oh, exactly oh really? Wow. Question. And he's, got, he's going to publish his doctorate regarding this issue. And he has made fantastic uh, piece of work regarding exactly this question and he interviewed I think all of us all the senior in the last 20 or 30 years regarding this um, question so the answer is definitely yes first of all uh, we are very curious and um, we are teaching our intelligence officers always to say his own opinion we like the people that are thinking different. And we encourage them, challenge us. The fact that I'm right now Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel General, one star, two star, doesn't mean that I have more, um, uh, more knowledge than you, that I'm smarter than you. I'm more experienced, I'm more senior, but I'm not smarter. 
And we want to hear the young generation always and we encourage them. This is very unique to us. The other issue is the moral courage to say, hey, guys, you're wrong. Uh, sir, uh, whatever you take a decision right now, uh, I will do, I'll make it different and I will do the opposite. We love it. We don't see it as a chutzpah or something that is not polite or something like that. We see that if the people are serious, not just because they're saying they're just to say, and they're basing on uh, facts and knowledge and things like that, this is unique for us. Controversial, uh, critical, um, always welcome. We are giving intel to decision makers, meaning we are teaching our intelligence officer to say to the commander of the battalion, whether it's tactical operation, exactly how we have to act, not only the fact. And um, jumping to the cabinet level will tell them whether we are recommending to attack in Iran in 2009 or 2012, or whether we are not recommending to do it. We are not keeping whatever we think only to ourselves. Now, because it's a free country for the time being, the chosen or the elected people that are sitting in the cabinet have two options, whether to listen to us or whether not. They have the right to make decisions. But we're not going to make um, life easier on them and just to give them the facts, it's your decision. We always will say whatever we command, not to leave the question on me. Um, it's from the operation level, tactical level, and as I said, the strategic level of, uh, of force as well. Uh, it seems to me that this is very unique because we don't have the expression like in America, for example, this is a policymaker decision. This is a downtown decision. You're the, office, the intelligence officer. Say what you think. Say exactly. This is it. And I, I want to discuss another period from your time in the intelligence corps. So you're an intelligence officer in the Judea and Samaria division. So I just wondered if you could tell the listeners what that is and, and how that experience was different from being in the Golani Brigade. Golani is only one brigade, serious one, that know how to, um, you know how to deploy it in the north, in the south, but at the end of the day, it's one. When you're the intelligence officer of all the West Bank, like I used to be, it's from the south of Israel, from the areas near Beersheba, to the north, all the way, and not far from Afula. This means that you're crossing the whole state of Israel, and you have six brigades. You have from the north uh, lots of Palestinian cities, with a lot of population. You have Jenin, then you have Naples, then you have Tulkarim, then you have Ramallah, then you have uh, Bethlehem, and then you have Hebron. And it's a very uh, complicated situation with uh, a lot of civilians, uh, population that have the rights to live uh, peacefully, I'm speaking about the Palestinian with a lot of bad guys that are trying to challenge their existence sometimes, and of course, our existence as Israelis. And you have to be, to do the friendship between the bad guys and most of the population that wants to live peacefully. 
mix with the uh, Jewish population, all the settlements that deserve also security and to live quietly. This is a hell of a challenge uh, for professional officers that have codes and morals of officers and um, that's tough. But it's, uh, it's with a lot of responsibility and you can make a difference over here uh, by dealing with the bad guys and let the good guys and the people to live relatively quietly. The Judean Samaria division, this is, tell me if I'm wrong, this is referring to the, to the West Bank and the Gaza Strip? No, not Gaza, Gaza. only the West Bank. Gaza, Gaza division is a different division. It's in the south of Israel. And Gaza and the West Bank, as you know, the Palestinians split between themselves. Hamas is control, Hamas is a terror organization controlling the Gaza Strip. And in the West Bank, there is the Palestinian Authority, the PA. Uh, they are not speaking, by the way, with the Hamas in <laughs> Gaza. Uh, we are the only one that speak with them. And when I'm referring to Judean Somalia, I'm referring at the end to all the West Bank. When you're in the IDF, there's some very interesting things that happened during this period. Uh, so we have both of the Intifadas and 9-11. Can you just describe maybe the Intifadas, the experience of because they're at two different points in your in your life and your career. So you're so right. I was a um, young colonel. I just got my uh, third, uh, we call it falafel, never mind, of a full colonel. It was June 1st. I just finished the West Bank division uh, a week before. And uh, the IDF, uh, a couple of days ago, just left Lebanon completely after Prime Minister Barak decided to pull us off, pull us out of Lebanon after 18 years. And everybody thought that we are going for a peaceful period. Because I came from the West Bank, I knew that we are not. And um, I'm taking um, the command on the um, terror arena. Terror arena is the ter- uh, it's in the intelligence. This is the terror. This is the entity that is giving the intel in the general headquarters about everything that regarding city back then. Lebanon, Hezbollah. Syria, all the Palestinians and the Iranians uh, headquarters, terrorist organizations, um, Gaza, West Bank, and terrorist attack around the world, the Qaeda, Daesh, and affiliate, tiny thing. And um, we have like two and a half months of relatively quiet time to build uh, the strategy and the force. And on 29 September 2000, a uh, member of the Knesset, Ben-Hakalai Markshon, decided to go to the Temple Mount, and then the Second Intifada emerged. Uh, the Second Intifada emerged back then, and a week later, Hispana is kidnapping two soldiers in the north of Israel, and at the same day, the Iranian and Hezbollah are kidnapping in the Gulf, and uh, Reserve, Tenenbaum, at the same day. So in a week, we are right now. All the IDF in the West Bank, because the Second Intifada started, with a lot of suicide attacks. We have a mission in the north, and this is October 
2000. In my period, later on, a year later, September 11, of course, um, right in between in 2002, we have the suicide and the attacks against our interest in Kenya and Mombasa, when Al-Qaeda tried to take down an Israeli aircraft and blow up with a, it was like a cargo on a hotel that uh, lots of Israeli tourists used to be there. Uh, that's mean the three years you're basically uh, standing in your room and in the C3, and you have to stop a lot of bad guys. That's mean that you had a defending shield operation in April 2002, when we had to take responsibility about the Palestinians' uh, town because we had like 39 suicide attacks all of our cities in one month in April 2002. So the government just gave us the instructions, enough is enough, deal with that. And it was very, let's say, challenging three years with lots of operations, everything relying, as I said before, on accurate intel, because the last thing that we need is that we are looking is to hurt civilians. And you have to be very much accurate about whatever you are doing over here. And this is, was the period between 2000 to 2003 that I used to be the commander of the Tyrone Army in the IDF, the Army in the IDF. So it, it sounds like your time in the uh, Judea and Samaria division, that was good preparation to become the head of counterterrorism. Yeah, no doubt. Because till then, most of my career was in Lebanon. So I knew a lot of the northern arena and Hezbollah and things like that. I knew less the Palestinians uh, arena. And uh, the fact that I was in the West Bank division as an intelligence officer gave me good uh, advantages and prepared me in a way. Nobody can be prepared to a period like that because we lost hundreds of civilians inside Israel because of the suicide attacks. It was terrible period back then. But no doubt that you need some experience in order to deal with it. And sadly, I used to have this experience. I know that you were deputy head of the Intel Corps Research Division. What does that involve? The research division in Israel means, in America, that would be like the analysis division, is that correct? In the title, yes. In the title, yes. In the responsibility, no. Because in the end of the day, this division, the analysis division of the IDF, responsible to give to the government the assessment of what would be next year. How to prepare the country when it's supposed to be, let's say, for example, war on a large scale, something similar today to, I don't know, what happened in Ukraine right now, or only counter-terrorism operations, or uh, whatever. They are responsible about everything. So all the national assessments start with the intel that they've given them. That's why it's not exactly like the analytical one. Uh, in the agency, for example, or the DI, the DNI. It's a bit different. They also are using a lot of operational capabilities because they have to operate a lot of the internal operatus in a way. Your career takes this interesting shift where you go from the IDF over to uh, the Mossad. 
Um, tell us a little bit more about that. So, uh, Mayer Degan, he comes along and asks you to move over to the Mossad to be their counterterrorism division chief. Uh, did you know him previously? Was that also a culture shock? Um, what was it like moving from the IDF over to the Mossad? So, of course, yeah, I'll try to give you some color uh, description over here, and the details are uh, less important. Okay. <laughs> but like in uh, every fairy tale, it's uh, it's in a way it's a fairy tale because, of course, I knew Mayor Degan since I was lieutenant. He was chief of operation of the of the IDF back then, uh, one star general. And I was young uh, captain or lieutenant even, I think. And just because I said before, in the Israeli intelligence culture, there is no much gap or distance between the lieutenant or the young captain to the general one star. And during the nights, you need to operate in Lebanon. So I was the one that had to supply him uh, the info. And he knew when we stay in touch during all the position that he took and I took during the years. Later on, I was the personal assistant of the deputy chief of staff, who was the major general the responsible about the operation, so he was in the same um, uh, headquarter with me. And like always, one day, it was a night, 11 o'clock at night, and I'm getting a phone call, and uh, it's him on the line. And the conversation is like that. Um, I needed, uh, oh, they want me to be promoted to become a general in the IDF. And I'd lost this uh, issue. In this particular day, they decided that somebody else will be promoted and I'm not. So I was a bit uh, sad that day. And uh, as I said before, I knew Mary Degan. And 11 o'clock at night, he calls me and he said, uh, my son, uh, probably you're sad. Uh, because you didn't uh, promote, they didn't give you the promotion that uh, this morning. But I need you in the Mossad. I need you to become a general in the Mossad and to be the chief of the counterterrorism of the Mossad. He said, "Let's do it, senior. So you have to speak with the chief of staff that he will release me, that he will agree." He said, "I'm after the conversation with the chief of staff. He loaned me from the IDF to the Mossad." And the rest is this one. And, <laughs> and what was that like in terms of the culture? How is, how is Mossad different? First of all, I knew the organization because in the Israeli intel community, you're working all the time together. So not all the time, depends. When I was in the West Bank, for example, for two years, I used to work with the Shabak all the time because they are the, the one that's responsible about the West Bank. But when you were dealing, for example, in 2002 regarding September 11, this is something that you were working all the time. So the organization from the outside, I knew. The culture, I knew. The operation, in a way, I knew also. But no doubt it's a completely different ballgame. First of all, I grew up in a military uh, apparatus with all the general confinement and things like that. In the Mossad, nobody knows that you are a commander. You're wearing a suit or a shirt, and this is it. All the leadership is whether you have it or not. It's not coming from the ranks only. Um, like from the uniforms that you see. Secondly, you're dealing only with civilians. You don't have any more uh, young people like 18 and 21, like our boys and our girls and our daughters. The army, all the time you were with them in the south. Yeah. 
populations much more, uh, not much more older because it's young, after first degree, after college or something like that. But no doubt that they are not, uh, you know, not kids, but they are not very young. Um, all the culture is different. Um, women, 50% in the, in the military that have it. Military um, and women commanders, uh, women in operations. This is completely, it's like apple and oranges in data. Intel is the same. This and Ziggy and Delhi and all the other ones. Now, how you do it? It's each organization of his own DNA. But basically, uh, the language of Intel is very similar. All the culture around it, completely different. Other issue, Mossad is not working in Israel. I did the military days. You're working outside. As I said before, completely two different board. <laughs> And I would imagine that when you're in the IDF, you're... Your sphere of thinking is that 2,000-mile uh, radius that you spoke about, I guess. But when it's Mossad, it's, I guess then there must be a, a much broader geographic focus to all of it. The sky is not the limit. <laughs> uh, and when you went to the Mossad, did you think to yourself, like, I, I appreciate it's different culture and so forth, but here's a couple of things from the IDF that would actually be good in Mossad and, and vice versa. When you went to Mossad, did you think to yourself, okay, the military's different, but here's a couple of things that the Mossad do that actually would be good for the military. Yeah, help us just understand how you thought about the organization of both of them. Some of, some of it was creative one, to bring ideas from the different uh, organization, no doubt. But in some cases, I was <laughs> so off, meaning some of my people in Mossad start to laugh. Hey, man, it's not, uh, it's not the IDF here. Uh, here, we, don't, we are not so big like the IDF. <laughs> we don't have so many like the IDF. Uh, we are not working on it. So, I mean, I can give examples from both of the... Both of the organization, sometimes you think like a military, like a, a senior officer, that it's not relevant to the Mossad. And sometimes, yes, the fact that you are bringing some big thoughts, big ideas, things like that, uh, it's, it's very helpful. And on the contrary, uh, the Mossad is brilliant organization. Uh, so the, the triangle, the holy triangle, as we call it, uh, between Intel, technology, and operation, it's so efficient and so easygoing and so integrated that you can do it in the military sometimes. And um, you can learn a lot from the Mossad how to do it. And because we are good friends, all of us, and you see, we are moving, Uh, the stream of knowledge and the stream of ideas and uh, challenging each other and cooperation, of course, give us uh, huge advantages. For the IDF and the Mossad, is there already a lot of overlap and integration between them? You know what they're saying about tribe. It's great to be part of a tribe, but I'm not sure it's always good to get married and to have uh, children in the same tribe. 
it's always good that somebody from the outside is coming and just shaking the tribe a bit. And um, in our history, the commander of the military intelligence or the commander of the Mossad, the head of the Mossads, uh, for example, the last three of the Mossad directors, they are from the Mossad. Dagan was brought up at Prime Minister Sharon from the outside. I don't know to say what, who will be the next one. Military intelligence, rarely we have a career officer intelligence guy that is getting the commander of the Corps. Usually it's a combat generals that uh, the second star that they're getting is to be the commander of the military intelligence. A couple of them have become chief of staff. At least if I'm top of my head right now, four of them. The current chief of staff that we have right now used to be the director of military intelligence. The previous chief of staff, General Kuhavi, is the same. General Barak and General Pugirino. I hope that I didn't miss somebody. And if yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. So you see that there is no strict uh, path over here how to become the director, whether in the military intelligence or in the Mossad. And I'm for from time to time to, to change and not always to choose from the same tribe. Although I love the tribes, it's great to have the DNA of your organization or your division or whatever. It's great for the local patriotism. It's great how you go up people uh, to say that they see that they have where to go and where to be uh, one day. But from time to time, you need fresh ideas. And in a way, they've done it with me a couple of times. And I guess I'm wondering if you received any pushback from the Mossad people when you moved over there as an IDF, uh, career IDF officer? Not so much. Not something that uh, not some, not something that I can say that it was a trauma for me. And if yes, let's say that uh, let's say that I'm wrong. After two years or three years, they will finish this story. I stayed there for more like fifteen years, and I become also the director later on of the all those the old directorate. So, and I've done a couple of uh, uh, head of divisions. So it seems to me that in the end I was integrated okay. And the pushback was relatively, uh, probably I deserved the pushback if I got it, but it was also something so traumatically that uh, I said, I'm going back to the military or I'm going up. Yeah, that's something you On never... On the contrary. That's something you never hear about very often. Sometimes the pushback is warranted, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and tell us about some of the, the major events that happened during this period with the Mossad. So we have the Syrian civil war breakout in 2011. We have the um, Arab Spring. We have Iran. Um, help our listeners understand a little bit more about how you lived through those particular events as, as someone in the Mossad. So, see, so I'm getting the before the 2011 the counterterrorism chief for in something years. That's that's a long period, and that was after the Second Lebanon War. Uh, we had some challenges over here around the world, and then I was the chief analyst of the Mossad. It's uh, another division that we have. And then they decided to promote me to be the director, and um, immediately when I came, uh, started the Arab Spring. 
Now, the Arab Spring, some people uh, don't remember it. I just finished a couple of days ago, uh, like a Zoom with the Hudson Institute regarding the Syrian. And a lot of people right now criticize whether the Israeli policy, the American policy are right regarding Syria not. And it's great, again, to have a debate regarding this issue right now when you have almost a decade after it. And you can judge whether we've done good or, or less good. But back then, in the Arab Spring, you have to understand that what I see the first thing as director, uh, the most, one of the most important three things that we have in our national security, first and foremost, is a special relationship with Americans. We can speak about it later on. It's not relevant to the question. But the second issue is the peace with Egypt. And the third issue is the peace with Jordan. It was before the, the Abraham Accords. And when you see a country of 100, uh, more than 100 million people, uh, with huge one, with huge capabilities, just falling apart to the Muslim Brotherhood, to the radical Islam, <laughs> we had some uh, concerns regarding the stability of Egypt. So in the first few months of the Arab Spring in 2011 and 12, the only things that we looked it's a peace country. They are friends. We used to work together. We used to cooperate together. And uh, as you know, the Mossad is the zone officer for all the relationship you know, around the world. You don't know how to deal. Now, we have two operations back then in Gaza, one in 2012 and one in 2014. Now, in 2012, we are doing an operation in Gaza and in Egypt, Morsi, he is the president, not, uh, not any longer by Mubarak. How the Egyptian would react? You have so many questions. Because the Muslim Brotherhood are the affiliates and the good friends of the uh, Hamas in Gaza. How you deal with the Egyptian regarding this issue? How you cut, how you finish the war in Gaza by engaging the, the Egyptians back there? That was very, very... We spoke about so many challenges before. This is a completely different one. This is not a military. This is not, this is a different kind of intelligence, strategic one, friendly one, which much more creative thinking, how to solve problem. It's not without, uh, how to just stick with people and to try to solve problem over here. And um, Syria collapsed almost completely to Daesh. 70% was under Daesh. And a lot of chemical weapon with the red line of President Obama, whether the American will attack or not, whether it will be chemical, um, scud missiles with chemicals against the region or not, because he used to launch chemical weapon against his own people. Uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees that are coming to Jordan. In Jordan, this is something that is really vital to the security of Israel. And we will do almost everything in order that the Jordan will remain uh, independent and stable and things like that. And back then you see hundreds of thousands of refugees, a lot of them died that are trying to go to Jordan. Or you did with that as well. You have to always to look and to have an eye on Lebanon, Hezbollah would do, and then Hezbollah is sending a lot of people to Syria to help Bashar back then. At the same time, the American decided to open the back channels with the Iranians in Oman, yeah, to cut the deal with them, 
2012 and 13, the intermediate agreement, and later on, uh, the JCPOA that were signed in 2015, in the middle of Libya collapse with all the, <laughs> with all the mess that used to be there. Yemen collapsed completely. The Iranians started to take the Houthis. 2011, 2016, from a strategic point of view, and the Russians are coming to Syria in September 2015, when the Americans decided that this is a quagmire, they're out. Afghanistan, Iraq, dozens of the American troops that are staying in Syria, coordination between us and the Americans, coordination between us and the Americans regarding Iraq, Lots of issues. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you deal with that just on a human level? I mean, you must have had so, so much on your mind, so many things to worry about. How did you, how did you deal with all of the pressure? I was so tired, so I went to sleep. And when I'm <laughs> sleeping, I'm sleeping good. And then you're waking up and continue to deal with all the pressure. Just one day at a time? I mean, no, no. You, after so many years, you, you are so experienced how to deal with pressure and how to understand immediately what right now is immediate that you have to take care about. Sometimes it's not real. Some people are really concerned about something that you look about and say, yes, relax. Wait for tomorrow morning. Wait, wait, wait. it will vanish. Let's eye on the ball, as you say. Uh, let's deal with the serious people or the serious challenges that, uh, uh, or serious issues that we have. Uh, not to jump in every five minutes because we have so many balls and so many challenges in the air. You need to be focused all the time. And it's good to have sometimes gray hair and a lot of experience in order to deal with that. And just help me get this right, Zohar. So you become the director of intelligence for the Mossad. Is that the, the right title I'm using? I'm just trying to help our listeners understand the difference between the director of intelligence and the director of the Mossad. Uh, so the director of Mossad, as I said before, he's the, he's the man. He's the one that's taking all the decisions about everything. Whether to recruit a guy, whether to do a technical operation, whether to um, all the negotiation with the cabinet, the government, the prime minister, he's, he's the director of Mossad. In the Mossad, there is so many sections. A big one, an important one. They can, no, this is the director of intelligence, but this is only one part of the operation unit that are under the Mossad. This is not. Just as we move on to the end of the interview, Zohar, can you... If you had any lessons that you could distill from your career in intelligence, what, what would they be? I, I know that that could be a very, that could be a whole separate podcast, but if there's anyone out there that's, that's interested in this career, what, what, what lessons or piece of advice would you give them? I think first of all is to remember from where you came, meaning your history, basically is our families, the values that we got at home. You don't have to think about it like every month but, or every day, but um, this is something that you bring with you to all, everything, every uh, position that you are doing, meaning the values that are bringing for home, to be very open-minded and curious to learn all the time, all the time. If you are not reading between two hours to four hours a day, you're just not doing your job. And to read about everything, from economy, 
the oil, uh, the price of the barrel of the oil right now, and why OPEC is going up or down, or the chips right now that are missing in some of the electric cars, uh, because at the end of the day, it's also, it will come to security. Everything today in 2021, right now in 2023, everything is connected in a minute. Whatever is happening in Ukraine right now, everybody in the Philippines knows if something is happening in Australia, not in Tel Aviv, everything that is happening right now in, I don't know, in a small town in uh, the U.S., you know it in a minute. So you need a lot of ability, how to do the integration, what is important, what can reflect your range in your interest and to rely on good people, to choose the best people, and to give them a lot of, a lot of responsibility and a room to operate and to work. And to build. And can we expect uh, a memoir from you at some point? No way. <laughs> okay. I, I was, hope. I was going to invite you back on the I show, that... but... <laughs> yeah, Nobody will believe any story that I will <laughs> Well, thanks ever so much for speaking to us this morning. This has been a pleasure. And yeah, thanks for your... Thank you so much. And you're doing a great job. And, and we have a great respect for your uh, museum and your entity. And it's so important that uh, you're doing this kind of... Uh, the young officers are listening to that. And uh, I hope that they are learning sometimes or learning not to learn from us based on some things that we're saying. And uh, thank you so much for this initiative that uh, approached me. Thank you. Of course. Thank you so much. Thanks, Zohar. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on next week's show, we will feature a panel discussion that we had recently here at the International Spy Museum on Robert Hansen. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL SpyCast. If you go to our page, thecyberwire.com slash podcasts slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm Aaron Dietrich, and your host is Dr. Andrew Hammond. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Emily Renz, Afua Anakwa, Ariel Samuel, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Ivan. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection on intelligence and espionage-related artifacts, the International Spy Museum. <laughs>